You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Well, Matt's already said Merry Christmas, but I can't help myself. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You know, I, I've got to say, I said it in the earlier service, but all weekend I have just thoroughly enjoyed the work of that worship team and leading us in those Christmas carols and making it so worshipful. Like, what a great experience that was. I want to just say thank you to the many volunteers and our sound booth and media and music teams that work so hard, come so early to prepare for you to help lead you in a moment of worship. But I just thought it was fantastic uh, way. I, actually, I don't know how I can top it, so I'm not even going to try. You don't want to hear me sing, do you? No. Okay, so here's how I want to start our talk, because we have been in a series called Christmas Unfiltered. Pastor Keith's message last week is worth a re-listen. It might be a chance to re-engage, and I talked to someone in the first gathering. They missed our teaching. You can go online and see it. It was that good last week. I want to talk about and start in this gathering with a little bit of a survey, if you would participate with me. I'm going to put up some popular or common sayings on the TV here, and if you believe they're true, I would like you to indicate with a hand raise. Here's the first one. The early bird gets the worm. How many believe that's true? See, if you really believed it's true, you would have been at the 9.30 a.m. gathering. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Okay, the next, the next one here. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Who believes that's true? Put it up. We want to see all the A-type people in the room, yeah. I laughed Saturday night. There was a couple sitting right here, and uh, her hand shot right up. His stayed completely down, and his head went down. <laughs> I thought, I-, I, go, I know how this is going. You know, for anyone who's leaving the gathering, that is not found in the Bible. It sounds like it, but it is not found in the Bible. Okay, next one. A watch pot never boils. Now, I don't know if you know what this means. My grandmother would say this all the time. The idea was this, if you put water on the stove and you turn it on, you're waiting for it to boil. If you're watching it, it just never seems to boil. But when you look away, it starts boiling. How many believe a watch pot never boils? Okay, not too many of us, some of us, enthusiastically, nostalgically, I'm sure. How about this one? Good things come to those who wait. Who believes that's true? I think that's true often relationally. You know when you're waiting for that perfect person or that right person, there is no perfect person, that right person. Don't settle. Sometimes it's tempting to settle, but good things come to those who wait. But I think context is everything. Like if your house is burning down and the front door is there and you're waiting to be rescued, get out. (laughs) Don't wait. (laughs) Context is everything in this expression. How about this one? The grass is always greener on the other side. How many believe that to be true? Man, I have used the line similar to that, like the grass is not always greener or the grass is always greener on the other side. When I've talked to people, maybe they're in this relationship and they're in a tough spot. And all of a sudden, other people look better, right? But the grass is greener on the other side, but it's not, I always say this, but it's astroturf. It's not real. It's not real. How about this expression? How about this one? Actions speak louder than words. Who believed that's true? Man, almost every gathering, almost 100% of hands go up. Why? Because we've, we've all experienced someone who talked a big game and didn't deliver. You know, who talked a big talk but couldn't walk the talk. You ever been there? Aren't those people a little frustrating at times? Aren't those people us sometimes? Oh, a little less yeses in the room here. <laughs> The fact is, you know, there's something about actions and words coming together that helps us really trust people and trust God. Now, here's something I want to lean into this weekend for our Christmas Unfiltered series. I want to talk about a person who never talks in the Bible, but his actions speak way louder than his words. And there's some lessons that his life reveals that if we can grab hold of it, we'll see, A, what God loves. You'll see the things that God loves, the characteristics that God loves to see in his people. And you'll see the type of person that God taps on the shoulder to do something great in this world. 
because he embodies these characteristics. The person I want to talk about, I want to talk about the fathers of Jesus. See, Jesus came from a blended family. I don't know, maybe you may come from a blended family. You know that unique tension, that special unique tension of straddling maybe a biological father and a stepfather? Well, Jesus had an earthly father. His name was Joseph. And he had a heavenly father. And his, his earthly father would have, would have held him in his arms that first moment on that first Christmas day when he was born in Bethlehem, would have held him in his arms, maybe even during his first cry. And, and, but the heavenly father, he saw Jesus cradle the world in his arms when he created it at the moment of creation. Jesus had this intimate relationship with Joseph, but he also had an intimate relationship with his father in heaven. Jesus relied on Joseph to provide, to care, to protect, especially in his early years, and he relied on his heavenly father. Here's the question I'm driving at today is, why did God choose Joseph? I mean, there are millions of messages, thousands of books that have been written on why God chose Mary. That's, that's a question that's been tackled a, a thousand different ways over the centuries. And so that's too easy for a series called Christmas Unfiltered. We're going to go a little bit harder. We're going to ask the question and try to answer the question, why did God choose Joseph? If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't, pull out your phone. You can jump on our free Wi-Fi. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to start reading from in a moment. There are two major Christmas accounts in the gospel. One is in Matthew, one is in Luke. When you read and you come to a gathering, you're going to hear one of the two usually because they have the most details around Christmas. Now, Luke is centered on Mary's perspective. It's from the mother Mary's perspective of how Christmas unfolded. Matthew is focused on the father's perspective and principally even Joseph. You're going to see that in a moment. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 starts this way. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, pledged, you might be thinking this is like being engaged, but it's quite different in that ancient culture. Like when we're engaged to be married in this culture, I mean, that's big, but there's still a chance it might not work, right? As painful as that is, it's not a guarantee. When you are pledged to be married, it was as good as married. But in our modern vernacular, married without any of the benefits, so to speak. Because they had been uh, pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they had come together, before they had consummated the marriage, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is massive. So here's the background. In Luke, an angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you've been chosen. You've been chosen to bear and carry the Son of God inside of your womb. And Mary is astonished, and she leaves because she's betrothed to Joseph. She leaves to go visit her cousin Elizabeth in another village. And Elizabeth is also expecting, and she's bearing John the Baptist. If you know the Bible at all, he's the forerunner of Jesus. And John the Baptist is in her womb. And she tells Elizabeth everything the angel just said, all about what was going on. She stayed there for quite a while. By the time she came back to her home village where Joseph is, Mary is showing. I would have loved to have been here to hear this conversation. As Mary walks down the village, well, and with a baby bump now, and Joseph sees her and says, Mary, what happened? Because he thinks he knows what happened. She's been away, and something's gone on, and now look, at, it's not him. And, of course, we know the backdrop of it was from the prophet Isaiah. He prophesied that the Messiah would come from, be born of a virgin. And Mary explains to Joseph, and I, I, this is the part I'd love to see. How do you explain this, right? How do you explain this say to Joseph? I know this looks bad. <laughs> like, I know this, does, but it's not what you think. And he's thinking, like, I know it's what I think. <laughs> and she's going, it's not what you think. This is from God. And, of course, understandably, he doesn't believe her. Like many people, even in the culture today, that hear about the virgin birth and they're left scratching their head and they're going like, what? Are you kidding? It's hard to believe something that's naturally impossible. It's more than improbable. It's naturally impossible. But let me just briefly speak to two groups of people, though. If you're a follower of God and you believe that God created the earth, 
Is it so improbable to believe that God could have placed a fetus in this young Jewish woman's womb, all a part of his great plan to redeem this world, that someone would come and live the life we couldn't live, a perfect life, and then lay down his life to pay for all of the brokenness in this world so that our penalty would become his penalty. And all of a sudden, we would receive his grace. Is it so hard to believe that God couldn't put a living fetus inside of a young Jewish girl's womb in order for the Savior to be born? It's not too hard of a stretch, but you might push back and say, well, Jonathan, I don't even believe God created the universe. I don't believe it happened that way. Okay, you know, cool. Whether you're online or in the room, I'm glad you're here. Because I should talk to you because, honestly, and I don't, I don't say this sarcastically at all, you certainly have a deeper faith than I do. Much deeper faith. To believe that there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not an atom not a molecule, because where would that have come from? Nothing at all. A total void. And somehow an atom appeared and a molecule appeared. Somehow they collided together. And over time, maybe over millions of years, these small things that came from nowhere and no one became a complex society and civilization with multiple species on a planet sustained. Like it, That level of faith is something I don't quite understand because it came from nothing, nothing. The story of Mary and Jesus being born of a virgin is so intricately laced with the resurrection of Jesus. These are the two pivotal moments in the Christian faith. They're not folklore. They really happened. The resurrection is far easier to prove. Of course, the virgin birth is difficult because it's improbable. It's a, it seems impossible. Unless you have the faith to believe that God can do all things. Well, this is not about the virgin birth, but I just need to lay that out there. Happy to talk to anyone who'd like to talk further about this after our gathering. But, but it continues. It doesn't leave us hanging there. In verse 19, it says this. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. This is our first clue about some of the characteristics that Joseph embodied. Faith of the law meant he was God-honoring. He knew the laws of the scripture and he followed them and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. You're going to see a tension there that Joseph is in. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a, can you say it with me? Dream. You're going to count, you count how many times God speaks to Joseph through a dream by the end of our gathering here. It's staggering. And says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, I love this, he did it. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. There's so much going on in this passage. It tells us so much about the type of person that God uses to do significant things. It tells us so much about the type of things that God loves to see in his people. So I'm, I'm going to talk to, it, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, there was a series of Nike ads out there where it was about Air, Mike jo Michael Jordan, and it was Be Like Mike. Anyone remember those Be Like Mike ads? Well, here's what my challenge is for you this Christmas season, this weekend in our Christmas Unfiltered series, is Be Like Joseph. Be Like Joseph. And the first characteristic is this, Be Like Joseph, faithful. It says that, Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. When you read about Joseph, there's not a lot in the Bible about him, but every time you do, you're confronted with this profound truth. This man is deeply devoted. This man is incredibly faithful. He wants what God wants more than what he wants. He wants what God wants more than the people around him, what they want. It's incredible, his devotion and faithfulness. I was thinking about that this week because I was thinking how little we talk about faithfulness in our culture and society. Anytime we talk about it, it's usually in the context of being unfaithful. Somebody's been unfaithful to someone, and that kind of grabs our attention, but faithfulness doesn't. 
Yet the Bible talks about it quite often. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church in Galatia, and he talks about how do you know whether someone really is a follower of Jesus? And he gives you some proofs. He says, well, this is how you know someone's a follower of Jesus. It's, he called it the fruit of the Spirit. If, if somebody has Jesus' Spirit inside of them, well, you're going to see they're loving. You're going to see that they're gentle, they're patient, they're kind. You're going to see that there's peace there, there's joy there. Just as we were singing earlier and celebrating, there's joy there. But one of the fruits of somebody who is evidence that they are a follower of Jesus is there's faithfulness. Now, faithfulness is not a mysterious word. Here's what it literally means in the Greek as Paul uh, describes it. It literally means faithfulness is keeping your promises. It's keeping your promises, and it also means to be courageously declaring the truth. Faithfulness is being truthful and keeping your promises. So in a modern sort of way, here's what it looks like. To be faithful is to be predictable. It's to be predictable. To be faithful is to be principled. These are two characteristics that mark someone who is faithful. They're predictable. They're the same person here as they were here as they will be over here. And they're principled. Don't you love faithfulness? Like, I mean, when you're doing business with a company, don't you love when they promise you this and they give you this? Don't you love that? Like, I look at that and I always think, yeah, yeah I want to do business with you. In contrast to that, unfaithfulness. They promise you this and they deliver you this. Clearly, you don't do shop in the same place as I shop at times because the, the gap is massive at times. We all love faithfulness, but what's interesting, I think, in our culture and society is we're not enamored with faithfulness because predictable and principled is boring. It's boring. Look at our YouTube channels. Look at our entertainment. Our entertainment's about unpredictable people. Ah! Unprincipled people. It's the unfaithfulness that entertains us and attracts us. It's the train wrecks. It's like driving down the 401 and there's a fender bender. And what happens? Everybody stops. Take a good look. Why? Because it looks like the last fender bender and the one before it and the one before. We can't stop ourselves, right? We never stop. Why? Because we're attracted to something that looks like a bit of a train wreck. There's an unfaithfulness piece Faithfulness is not that attractive in our culture and in society. We don't love predictable. We're bored by predictable. We don't love principled. We're bored by principle. And yet God made us to not only want it, but to need it. And friends, you know, as much as we're not attracted to it, we know we need it. We want it, don't we? You want to know that, that the women around you are faithful in your life. You want to know that the men around you are faithful in your life. You want to know the businesses you're dealing with are faithful, don't you? We want it, but the reason we struggle to celebrate it... Now, I think our culture celebrates it nostalgically. I call it nostalgic faithfulness. We look back, even people who don't even believe in marriage, don't like marriage, don't like the idea of marriage, they'll see a couple, and they'll see them being interviewed, and they've been married 60 years, and they're still holding hands. And everybody, even the cynics, go, oh, isn't that sweet? Why? Because it's faithfulness, and we kind of like that. Or we hearken back to historically, we'll look at a generation that went through the Great Depression, through world wars, and they still built a great nation, and they gutted it out. And we look back, and we say, look at their faithfulness. Look at their faithfulness, how they did that. And there's something in us that goes, man, that's pretty cool. But the reason we don't like it in our everyday life and we don't celebrate it is simply because we struggle to give it. Don't we? Don't we struggle to be faithful in word, thought, action, and deed? Man, it's not always easy. But to be clear, in Joseph's life, he's faithful, but he's not perfect. There's a difference between faithfulness and perfection. Because if perfection is the standard, every one of us falls short, right? We all need grace. We need grace from Jesus. But faithfulness, God loves faithfulness. Here's the reason why I, and I'll speak about me, I struggle with faithfulness. is because there's a little Herod in me from week one. A little Herod that wants my way, on my time, how I like it. There's that little selfish piece of me, that little Herod, and that pushes back against the element of faithfulness. Here's the beautiful thing, though, for you today. Listen, I want you to know God's faithful. God is faithful to you. 
He is predictable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is principled. He will never see the righteous forsaken. There there is a predictability and a principledness of God that you can build your life on. Listen, if you're looking for that special somebody in life, you know, maybe you're looking for somebody this Christmas season, come to our Christmas Eve gathering. I guarantee, no, I can't guarantee it. But, but you're looking for someone in this life and maybe you got a list of things you want from that person. I mean, he's gonna look like Denzel Washington, be a rocket scientist, be ambitious. He's tender and gentle, yet courageous and strong. And she's just, well, you know, lights out looking and just incredibly intelligent, but driven too at the same time and very accomplished and very successful, yet quiet and diminutive. At different, you know, we have our list of things. Listen, what often doesn't get on the list is this, faithfulness. I, I want to say this to you. If you're, I, I, maybe you're not even looking for someone. Maybe you're already with someone. Try to bring this to the party. Faithfulness is something you can build a relationship on. Looks will diminish over time. Talents and skills get you so far. Faithfulness is a foundation you can build something great on. Look for people that are predictable and principled in this life. Uh, You know, I, I know it doesn't always seem amazing, but I want you to know in the kingdom of God, faithfulness is sexy. That, that's amazing. Faithfulness is what you can build a relationship on. So how do you become more faithful? Well, end of the message. It doesn't end here. See, it's not just be like Joseph, uh, be faithful. It's also be like Joseph, be kind. So it's, it's interesting. So he wants to be faithful to the law. The law, she has broken the law in his mind. She has committed adultery in his mind. She's been pregnant by another man in his mind. But it says this, and this is beautiful. There's a tension. Yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. What's going on here? Well, he knew the law. The law spoke what to do in the circumstances. There was no wiggle room here. Here's what the law said, and Joseph would have known this. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, the Mosaic law said this. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband. Sound familiar? Oh, it should. It's Mary. Uh, but, but this is just hypothetically speaking. And a man finds her in the city and lies with her. Then, she, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. Ooh. Is that a little ambiguous, this law? A little bit of gray room there? Do you see any wiggle room in this law? So he's a man who's faithful to the law. He knows Deuteronomy chapter 22. He knows what the law demands but he's kind in his heart. And he is revealing something. Something is being revealed in the person of Joseph in this little narrative. Remember this, friends, when you read the gospel, not a word has been wasted. It has been included for a reason. It is showing us something. And this little moment, this tension, where where Joseph is wrestling with the law and grace is a foreshadowing of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. So fast forward. When when Jesus has died and he's risen from the grave and he's ascended to the Father in heaven and the people that were followers of Jesus are now sharing the good news of Jesus with as many people as possible and the church experiences great growth. Many Jewish people come to faith in Jesus but here's the surprising thing. So do many Gentiles, people who are not part of the Jewish way, they begin to follow Jesus and this created a lot of trouble in the church. And in Acts chapter 15, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. In Acts chapter 15, all the religious leaders get together. All the Jewish leaders get together. The apostle Paul's there. The apostle Peter's there. Barnabas is there. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is there. All the other leaders, they get together to debate. One of them wants to say, listen, they want to be faithful to the law, just like Joseph is struggling with. Faithful to the law. There are over 600, almost 700 commands, and if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to commit, you've got to do them all. All of the Jewish commands, you've got to do it all. And then you have Paul on the other side, and he's saying, listen, why are you trying to put 600 commands on Gentiles that didn't grow up in them? You guys can't even keep them. (laughs) He was quite direct. And James gets up in Acts chapter 15, and he shares a sentence that changes the trajectory of the church. One of my favorite verses, he says this. It is my judgment, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, 
Therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And if you read on in that one swoop, he takes about five to 600 of the commands and he puts them aside. Now, I want you to know there's much rejoicing among the Gentiles at this time. Because they, they were struggling with living with these commands. And especially one in particular command for anyone who was a man who was following Jesus, which in the Old Testament meant you need to be circumcised. And so they were glad that that was now off the books. And that was all set aside. And he said, instead, he gave them three or four things they need to be doing. Now, what am I saying? What is God saying? What is James saying? Is he saying the law doesn't matter? No. No, he's not. Is he saying that people could do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and you just need to look the other way? No, no, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is what Jesus would say, what Jesus came to do, he had a different type of kingdom that operated a different type of way. It's not that these things don't matter. But in Jesus' kingdom, here's what matters. It's always a person before a problem. In Jesus' kingdom, it's always a person before a problem. Have you ever labeled someone a problem? That guy's a problem maker. And I'll tell, you who, I'll tell you what my problem is. You know what my problem is? And you could point to someone, right? See, Joseph had a problem. Mary's pregnant. And at this point, he thinks it's somebody else. But see, here's the thing that Joseph does that reveals the kingdom of God and a foreshadowing of what Jesus came to do. He saw a person before a problem. This broke his heart. He sees a problem, but you know what? He loves Mary. He loves Mary. In the kingdom of God, it's not just a person before a problem. It's restoration before correction. Restoration over correction. Religion will always jump right on the correction part. Our culture does that. Somehow, if, if there's enough punitive measures, people will change. How's that working? How's that working? But Jesus' kingdom is not saying that correction shouldn't happen. Correction should. But it always should be with a heart for restoration. How do we restore this person back to the image of God of which I made him before he was broken and flawed and marred by sin, by his poor choices, by her poor choices? How do we restore? It's restoration over correction. It's a person over a problem 100% of the time in the kingdom of God. And if all we see is a problem, we should keep our mouth shut. If all we're looking to do is correction, we probably shouldn't get involved because it's restoration and it's people over them. Now, why do you address the problem? Because if you love the person, you will. You'll help them with the problem. Why is correction important? How can it be healthy when your heart is restoration, not just correction? How many of you changed because somebody proved you were wrong? Does that feel good? Somebody debate, put you in your place, that feel good? Do you ever have someone correct you and you know they didn't have your best interest in mind? How's that feel? That's not the way the kingdom of God operates. That's not the way. This is what we see in the life of Joseph. It's fascinating to see how Joseph lives this out. Now, we know the story because we have the advance notice. In verse 20, we see Joseph finds out, okay, it wasn't another guy. Instead, the angel comes and corroborates Mary's story, and he marries Mary, and he has a baby son, and he calls him Jesus. And something beautiful is happening here. And again, this is going to be like Joseph. Be like Joseph. Be faithful. Be like Joseph. Be kind. And be like Joseph. Obey. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. Man, this is something you'll see over and over in the life of Jesus, or in the life of Joseph. He does what God asks him to do, over and over. But I want you to see, because sometimes we can polish that up. I want you to understand that Joseph's obedience didn't make his life easier always. Have you ever obeyed something that God had made and it complicated your life? You ever obey oh God and tend to obey something that he maybe commanded in scripture and it made your life a little bit more messier? You ever been there? And then you got in that place and you think like, God, why did I do that? You know, now it's just harder. Well, it was harder for him. I mean, by obeying the angel, Joseph got way more weight on his life. The weight of responsibility, whew, of raising the Messiah in your home, 
the weight of carrying the whispers of people who had seen the baby bump of Mary and knew they hadn't been married yet. And he would have been the one that would have been the guilty party. And he just took it. Because they didn't have an angel explain things to them. He just took all of the chatter. Not that people ever chatter about other people. And also, he took the weight of all of the weight of protecting and providing. And things are just about to get dangerous. Just about to get dangerous. But this is what I love about Joseph. This is what I love about Mary. I love that this young woman, this young adult woman, when the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, you're going to bear the Son of God, she says these words, I am the Lord's servant. Whoa. Do you know what you're saying? She's saying, I'm all in. And Joseph does the same thing. He never hesitates. You'll see this throughout this text. He never hesitates to obey. He never hesitates to put the interests of others before his own. He never hesitates, and I can't get over this, in a male-dominated society at that time, he never hesitates to take third billing behind the son and behind the mom. He's willing to get in the back seat. He never hesitates to do that. The trust that is demonstrated by these two young adults is amazing. Look, in chapter 2, pretty interesting. Remember, God talks to Joseph many times in dreams, and you notice, you'll notice this trend. He just obeys right after this. So in chapter 2 of Matthew, the magi come, the wise men come, and they warn, and they come with gifts, and you know, Herod's out to kill Jesus. He wants to kill him, and it says this in verses 13 and 14. It says, when they had gone, the magi, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a Dream, yeah. Get up, he said. Take your child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for your child. He's going to kill him. And in verse 14, it says this. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. I love Joseph. You know what? God, you just told me to do it. I'm doing it now. No hesitation. Mary, we got to go. Where are we going? We're going to Egypt. What? <laughs> the street lights aren't even on good time to go. We can sneak out of town. Let's go. Immediately, he does it. Now, why Egypt? Two reasons. One, we talked about in the first week of our series. Remember, the, uh, the prophet had said that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. This was a way of getting the Messiah to Egypt to fulfill the prophecy. But the second reason is this. At that time in history, a lot of, Egypt, a lot of Jewish people had fled to Egypt whenever there was political unrest. And where Israel was situated, there was always unrest. It was, between, it was the highway between Egypt and Asia. So a lot of people wanted that land. So in this moment, there was about one million, they say, expat Jewish people in Alexandria, Egypt at that time. So Joseph goes down there. He sets up shop, as he would have already in Bethlehem. When, when Jesus was born, they were probably there close to two years in Bethlehem before they fled for Egypt. And then during that time, he would have had to set up his business, get all new clientele for carpentry work. And then he packed it all up and he left and he went to Egypt and he did the same thing over and over. In verses 19 to 22 in chapter 2, it says this then. And after Herod had died, Herod's the guy trying to kill Jesus, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Just like that? Just like that. No hesitation. Why? Such deep trust, such deep obedience. Here's the truth about Joseph, and it's the truth about you, and it is certainly the truth about me. We always obey to the degree we trust doesn't matter what the relationship is in our life. If we deeply trust our parents because they have not, through maybe character problems, marred that trust, even when they ask us to do something we don't understand, we'll do it. If Shelly asked me to do something, size Anthony the dishwasher, but everything else, if Shelly asked me to do something, she's both predictable and principled person. She's a faithful person. Even though I don't understand why, well, I'll do it. We always obey to the degree that we trust. See, all of these steps of obedience cost Joseph. How many times did he open up a business, get clientele, only have to close the business again? 
How many feel the pain? How many entrepreneurs in the entrepreneurs in the room feel the pain already? How many times did he have to physically move, emotionally cut relationships, move on out of obedience to God? Countless times. It's, it, he's not even done yet. And on all of this, we see something about what obedience is. It's more than doing a moral code. I like what Dr. Timothy Keller says. He says, the essence of Christian obedience is not do's and don'ts, but personal allegiance to Jesus. Personal allegiance to Jesus. If I trust Jesus, I will obey Jesus. See, in Joseph's day, I've highlighted dreams here for a reason. In Joseph's day, it was popular and it was popular significance that people would be spoken to by God through dreams. In fact, there was a common saying, just like we've done common sayings like actions speak louder than words. There was a common saying in Joseph's day. It was this. If anyone sleeps seven days without dreaming, call him wicked. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. The Hebrew word here means God unremembers him. <laughs> unremembers him. See, God would speak to people through dreams. Now, I know people, even in 2018, they put a lot of weight on things like dreams. Or they'll go back further in the Old Testament and they'll read about a character named Gideon and they'll put out a fleece and try to test God to see what God's will is. Friends, 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 friends. You have something infinitely better than a fleece or a dream. If you're a follower of Jesus, the scripture says this, that Christ's spirit is inside of you. And here's something maybe you don't hear us say enough. The Holy Spirit is always talking. He's guiding, he's correcting, he's convicting, he's leading. Are you listening? Are you hesitating? Is there something that Jesus has already told you to do and you've not done it? Is there something he's asked of you and you won't do it? Now, listen, sometimes for good reasons. Sometimes in life, our trust in Jesus gets dinged because we've been praying, we've been asking, we've been waiting, we've been hoping, and somehow God hasn't come through. And we have these moments where that trust seems to be fractured. And then when God asks us to obey something, we were like, oh, I don't know. Friends, listen, hear, hear this from my heart, and I mean this. Put your trust in Jesus. Take his hands. They were pierced so that you could know he knows the pain you're in. He's been there. He was raised up, friends, so you would know that God always has a comeback plan. God always has a doorway out of the situation. God always has a way forward. Faithful, obedient, kind. One last thing. Be like Joseph. Be humble. Be humble. Now, it, it didn't didn't end there, the whole story. So Joseph is in Egypt with Mary and, and Jesus, and the angel said, go to Israel, and so he gets up and goes. And here's how the story plays out. This is pretty important, pretty cool. It says this, when he heard, and that heard, he is Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, Ooh, there we go again. He withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Now, this is way cooler than you even imagine. So get this. Herod the Great is the man who tried to kill Jesus as an infant. And he dies. But Herod the Great left 11 different wills behind. And he had many sons from many different women. And he let them fight over it. It's almost like even in his death, he was gonna create more drama and more tragedy if he could. And he did. And three of his sons kind of came to the top fighting for the kingdom. Antipas, Philip, and Archelaus. And they all went to Caesar because Caesar was the emperor. And they went to Caesar to pitch their case on why they should be the king of their father's kingdom. Now, Caesar divided up the kingdom. And the best, the jewel of the kingdom was Judea. It was the economic engine of Israel. It was the educational epicenter of it. It was the cultural center of it. I mean, the leftovers was Galilee. <laughs> that was just like, okay, you can have Galilee. Judea was the place. And Archelaus was so, uh, if Herod the Great was violent, Archelaus was reckless in his violence. 
In fact, before he ascended to the throne to control Judea, what he did was he had 3,000 Hebrew people executed during Passover because he sensed and felt that there might be a rebellion coming. 3,000 butchered in the streets. In fact, he was so hated that 50 of the leading citizens of Israel on their own dime went to Rome, 50 of them, to petition Caesar in his court. They got an audience with Caesar and said, we hate Archelaus, anyone but him. But Caesar won't be dictated to. And he made Archelaus king. And when he came back to Judea, he had the 50 of them beheaded in front of him in Jerusalem. And against the backdrop of that, Joseph's warned in a dream about Archelaus. And Joseph puts his dream on the back burner to go to Galilee. Did you notice in the text, he wanted to go to Judea? Here's the point of all of that. Why? Why, why did he want to go to Judea? He's from Galilee. Joseph's from Galilee. Why wouldn't he want to go back home? Because he's a lot like you, many of us in this room. He wanted to go to Judea because he wanted a better life for his kid. He wanted more opportunity for his wife and, and his children. He was looking to help them move forward. Judea offered so many more economical advantages. His business could prosper and flow in Judea. It had the best schools. It had the best neighborhoods. It had the best museums and arts and music and concerts. It was the epicenter. Why wouldn't you want to live in Judea? See, this is what I love about Joseph. Joseph is so much like his son Jesus. On the eve of his crucifixion in the garden, when he said, not my will, but your will. And Joseph keeps saying that over and over. Not my will, not my way, but your way. Have you been saying that enough these days? Not what I want, God, but what you want, God. Have you ever been in Judea? In a place where everything's going great? Where maybe resources are great and friends are plentiful and all of this. And all of a sudden, through circumstances in life, you find yourself in Galilee. A place where you feel forgotten and insignificant. Have you ever taken a ding financially? And maybe you're at a stage in life where you're going like, here we are financially. If I hadn't given away so much, if I hadn't honored God with my money, if I hadn't tithed, if I hadn't done those things, you know, all our friends didn't do that. And look where they're at. Look where they're at. And you feel like you're in Galilee and you feel like I'm in a place of unfor unforgotten. It's insignificant. Look what we've lost. Or have you ever been in a place in Judea, uh, in Judea like relationally and you have people in your life, but you know they're not God-honoring relationships. And so you end them. And before long, it's Friday night and nobody's calling and no text messages. And you're wondering, did you do the right thing? Have you ever been there professionally? You're in Judea, you know how to play the game, keep moving up that ladder. But at some point you draw a line, you say, no, I'm gonna be faithful to what God is saying and I'm not gonna cheat. I'm not gonna take shortcuts to blessing. And you find yourself no longer getting ahead like you used to. You find yourself feeling like you're in Galilee and you feel insignificant in Galilee, you feel forgotten, you feel cheated sometimes in Galilee. But friends, let me tell you this. If you're in Galilee, and you feel forgotten and insignificant and God has led you there, friends, this is not an insignificant and forgotten place. This is your place of preparation and equipping. This is how God is preparing you, just like he did Jesus. He put him in the most humblest of villages, all in preparation for a man that would change the world. God doesn't know what he's doing. God knew exactly what he was doing. God doesn't know what he's doing in my life. God knows exactly what he's doing. Trust him. Trust the process. Trust God. Trust what he's doing here. See, the humility of Joseph to take the back seat is invigorating. Over and over, he takes the back seat. In Matthew chapter 2, remember when I told you the wise men came and they brought gifts to Jesus? fantastic portion of scripture. Look at this, what it says though. Notice this. It says, on coming to the house, the magi or the wise men, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Who's not mentioned? The man. 
The man who's out there working, getting the food, finding the place for them to live, Joseph's not even mentioned. He doesn't get first, second, third billing. He gets no billing here. And over and over, he's okay with that. In Luke chapter 2, fascinating portion of scripture. Jesus and Joseph and Mary go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with lots of people from the village of Nazareth. And they're headed back. Jesus is 12 years old at the time. And they're headed back and they get a day or two into the journey and they realize, where's Jesus? And they've lost him. Because it wasn't uncommon for him to travel with another family or something because they were all small village. They looked up for each other. But they realized Jesus was with none of them. So the parents take the journey back to Jerusalem to find him. How many parents would be happy at that point? I would not be happy. I'd be like on that road saying, Shelly, you know, well, you know, we got one other. Come on. Can we keep going? <laughs> you know, it's a long journey back there. <laughs> but, but they find him in the temple. And it's interesting. Mo, Mary is upset. Mary says, son, your father and I have sought for you anxiously. And Jesus says this to them. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about, can you say it with me? My father's business. Had Joseph been a lesser man, that would have been a stake in his heart. Well, Jesus, I thought, I thought carpentry was our business. I've taught you everything I know. Had he been a lesser man, he would have put Jesus in his place. How dare you? How dare you? Here's the beautiful, humble thing about Joseph. He knew his place. Do you? Who's the Lord? You are Jesus. Whose will be done? Yours or his. See, there's a weight that Joseph, this is why I love Joseph. The more I got into studying him this week, the more amazed I was with him. How could this man carry the weight of raising the Messiah? Think about it, friends. He's the only dad in human history that had a son that was older than him. He had the responsibility to raise the ancient of days. Whew. Wiser. I, I, I can't get over that. How could he bear that weight? Through faithfulness, through kindness, through obedience, and through? Yeah. He could bear that weight because of that. So friends, let me ask you this Christmas season. How does God measure the success of a church? How does he measure the success of your life? Does he measure a church by its attendance? Does he, marry, does he measure you by your, your, your ability to comply to the moral code or to keep perfect attendance? God doesn't measure that way. God weighs us. He weighs a church by the amount of Jesus that is in this church. He weighs a life by the amount of Jesus that is in your life. You could have a church of 10,000 people and they made no, little room for Jesus and the Holy Spirit is weeping. You could have a church of 20 and they've made a lot of room for Jesus and the Holy Spirit is dancing. You could have an individual who has memorized tons of scripture and taught and yet they've not much, made much room for Jesus. You don't see that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, gentleness, faithfulness. And the Holy Spirit's grieved. And you can find someone imperfectly trying to follow Jesus and try to be faithful and make more room for Jesus and the Holy Spirit is rejoicing. Here's what I believe the Spirit would say to us this Christmas season. Every one of us needs to put on a little bit of weight. More of Jesus. More of Jesus in your life. More of Jesus in this church. Some of you just thought I gave you license to overeat. That's okay, you do what you need to do, but, but I'm talking about Jesus. More of Jesus in your life. You know, how do you become more faithful? Deeper into Jesus. How do you become more kind? You can always tell kind people from religious people. Kind people are people who have been with Jesus. Always a person before a problem. The goal is restoration over correction. It's reconciliation over correction. 
You can, you, can always, you can always see the evidence of somebody who's following Jesus. You can see it in their obedience. You can see it in their generosity. You can certainly see it in their humility. Friends, be like Jesus. Be like Joseph. Joseph didn't talk much. He wasn't a big talker, but man, that guy was a massive walker. Man, I could use a little bit more of that in my life. Let's talk more walk. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the person of Jesus. And in this moment, God, we give thanks for Joseph. He's barely mentioned, and I think that's probably the way he would have liked it. From everything I see about him in your word, he seems to be the guy not seeking the spotlight. He seems to be the man who's doing the right thing when nobody's looking. <laughs> doing the right thing while you're looking. The man who's willing to know his role. The man who's willing to take his place. And God, in the context of this gathering, and friends, if this is you, you might want to pray this with me. God, in, in my life at this time and in this moment, I've wanted the front seat. Kind of want to go where I want to go. I want life how I want it, and I want what I want. But God, in this moment, in this gathering, online, I'm getting out and I'm getting into the back seat. And I'm saying to you today, not my way, but your way. Not what I want, but what you want, God. And even if I find myself in Galilee, I know, God, there's a comeback coming. I know, God, you haven't forgotten me. I know that I am not, I don't find my, ins my significance and things around me. I find it in you, and I know, God, you're able to use a man from Nazareth, the backwoods, to change the world. God, what could you do through me? God, I humble myself before you. I ask for your grace for my disobedience. And I pray, God, that I'd be like Joseph, more and more, faithful, kind, obedient, humble. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.